That's right, you're listening to episode 113 of the DLSS Podcast. I'm your host, D-Love. Juliana Pena flips the entire MMA world on its axis, and Charles Dubronx Oliveira solidifies himself as the men's 155-pound king. All that more now. What up, what up? Welcome back, guys. Thank you so much for joining me. And damn, after UFC 269 this last weekend, along with a couple other things of note I'm going to make sure to talk about, I'm a bit exhausted. I'm a little bit drained emotionally, but this was a hell of a weekend in combat sports, not just for me, but as for you guys as a whole. And, uh, you know, with obviously Juliana Pena securing what, in my estimation, is the biggest upset in mixed martial arts, and it's not even close, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But, of course, as you know, she defeats the consensus women's MMA GOAT, Amanda Nunes, by submitting her in the second round of their fight in the co-main event. And then in the main event, Charlie Olives reminds everybody that he deserves to be the 155-pound champion uh, by submitting Dustin Poirier in the third round of their fight, You know, showing a very w- well-rounded mixed martial arts game and including overcoming adversity with that insanely paced first round that was back and forth, but he got rocked a few times by Poirier too, you know, which is just one more piece of evidence dispelling the rumor that he's got no heart and he's always, you know, looking for a way out in fights, but ultimately ends up getting the submission win in the third round, adding to his submission record and retaining the lightweight belt in his first title defense. So at the end of the night, you know, it's one of those events you walk away thinking that this is exactly why we love this sport because it's completely unpredictable and anything truly can can happen in MMA and it was definitely a night of unexpected outcomes some expected ones but for the most part there was a lot of things that at least from the better standpoint because you know with the co-main event going to Pena in a huge upset and then of course I'm going to be back in my guy Dustin Poirier you know truth be told there were some people privately I was saying I was a little concerned because I you know did not underestimate Charles Oliveira I know he's a savage and he's dangerous everywhere but in terms of betting, man, you know, a lot of people, it was a rough week. The entire MMA capping community, all the sharps are getting like 50% on their weeks. Like the last couple of weeks, last few weeks have been uh, extremely difficult for MMA bettors. Uh, when we had a stint of, I think, like six or seven weeks where most people, including myself, were absolutely destroying it. So I'm licking my wounds a little bit, but didn't do too bad. Ended up going seven and seven and looking at the greater community that wasn't all that bad considering. So I'm excited to get into all the results coming out of UFC 269. It was a hell of a lot of fun fights to talk about. We do have another card coming up next weekend. It is the last UFC card of the year. Fight night card with Derek Lewis taking on Chris Dalkus in the main event. So that's a lot of fun. So at the latter end of the show, I will be breaking down those fights and giving you my picks. Of course, in the middle there, we're going to take a quick break. And then I will recap the points for the predictions challenge one last time before the final event of the year. It is coming down to the wire, but... I'm pretty confident. I think I'm going to actually seal it this year. So hopefully I don't fuck it up in the last week. So we'll see how it goes. But before we get into any of that, of course, you guys know, I got to mention Dave DeCoursey and the DeCoursey Group. You guys have been sponsoring me pretty much since the beginning of the podcast. So thank you, Dave. And if you guys need to take any cash of the equity of your home, or if you need to get a loan in order to purchase a home, please do support the people that support the podcast. Go to www.thedecoursegroup.com. That's T-H-E-D-E-C-O-U-R-C-Y group. Dot com and do mention that the DLSS podcast sent you. It would definitely help me out a lot. And then also at this point of the show, you guys know I like to give a few shout-outs every single week. There's a lot that I could mention this week, but I do want to make sure to talk about my boy Blake Builder. He's making his uh, CFFC debut, and he's taking on uh, someone last name Torres. It's not important, but it's for the CFFC championship title, and he's going out there to the East Coast. Atlantic City is going to be handling business, so I'm excited for him. And if you guys don't know who that is, make sure to follow Blake 
the builder on his uh, Instagram, and the event's actually going to be streamed on UFC Fight Pass this weekend. Coming up, it was on this Friday, the seventeenth. So make sure not to miss it and support those who are affiliated with the podcast because this guy's a good dude. He's one of the hardest workers I know, and I'm really excited. I hope he goes out there and, and gets that belt. And for those of you who listened back to last week's episode, you know that I went up to Burbank had to support my boy Brian the Beast Shell. He's actually making his MMA professional debut and fighting for the title for Lights Out and his very first fight for that promotion. So, um, you know, Brian's is a beast, uh, hence the nickname, but he was somewhat up against it. Obviously, the guy he was going to get up against was their current title holder. And I think he had like a 10-2 and overall amateur record, and I think he was undefeated at 4 or 5-0 and in his professional career. So, you know, he's a good dude. I listened to his post-fight comments, and, you know, he gave Brian tons of respect. Unfortunately, Brian didn't get the outcome that we were looking for. But leveling up, no matter what, very valuable experience. And again, fighting for the title in his professional debut, so that says something. And Lights Out, it's been around for a while. It's doing pretty good. I think it's only been around a few years. That's, uh, you know, Sean Merriman of NFL fame is the co-owner and promoter of that uh, organization. And Albert Morales, uh, former UFC fighter, is their current 135-pound uh, champion. So it's a good promotion and, you know, good exposure, especially if you're trying to work your way up to the big leagues. And, you know, uh, Brian did say that him and Sean were talking about a multiple fight deal. So that's cool. Proud of my guy for going out there and doing his best. And, you know, it's we dust ourselves off and we just keep going. We keep getting better, keep going, keep growing. You know what I'm saying? And it was cool for me because I went up there just by myself, and that ended up being, like, probably one of the best things about it because I was, you know, extremely mobile. I was just kind of working my way maybe a little bit into the back where I wasn't necessarily supposed to be. Say what up to a couple of the fighters that I knew that were there. Uh, I met Jalen Turner, the tarantula, and his coach Anthony, who I think is an amazing pad holder. It's like the next Trevor Whitman laying in the wings. I ran into and met for the first time smiling Sam Alvey. That was a fun conversation. Guy's such a sweetheart, man. He actually had this like five-pound steak challenge he tried to do when he was driving out to Tennessee because he recently moved out there. And so I brought that up. We were talking about that a little bit. He said, this this is the secret, man. He's like, that steak was awful. He's like, it was terrible quality meat. It had no seasoning. It was disgusting. He's like, there's no way anybody could beat that challenge. And I'm like, yeah, bro, it looked pretty massive. But that was a fun experience to meet smiling Sam Alvey. I also ran into Andy Foster. If you guys know who that is, the real ones do. He's the executive chairman of the California State Athletic Commission. And so for somebody like me that nerds out on that shit, that was a lot of fun to meet him. I, of course, told him about the This Segment Rules portion of the show, the segment that I have, and uh, told him I was kind of a nerd about it. He thought that was uh, cool. And I asked him also, what were the best first steps to, like, if I'm interested in trying to become a judge, basically just said th- uh, to go through CAMA, which is the California Amateur Mixed Martial Arts Organization. It's essentially... Just like a fighter, he's recommending going through the lower ranks, the amateur ranks, and work your way up. Because that's typically how it works. You know, they give the referees or the judges more and more responsibility in higher profile fights the longer that they've been doing it and showing a proven track record. So that's basically what his advice was, which was cool. You know, he was there in official capacity, you know, and there was a fight about to start. So I didn't have much of his time. And uh, it's not like that wasn't something that I kind of already thought of or knew, uh, but I was hoping for him to be like, oh, wow, if this guy's willing to come up and ask me something about that, maybe he'd give me an inside track line or something like that. I don't know. But it was still cool to meet him. And then also I ran into Ashley Evan Smith. She was there doing some post-fight stuff for, uh, for I think, a social media company for every one of the winners would go and do a little spot with her. And so it was just cool. You know, I, was, I barely sat in my seat the entire time, I think for maybe like five minutes, maybe. Uh, and, you know, I was just kind of floating around and, if I saw anybody I wanted to go talk to, I just went up, tapped him on the shoulder and said, what up? So it was cool. Uh, you know, Brian obviously didn't get the result we we're looking for, like I said, but it's all good. He's got that experience now. He kind of broke the seal at that organization. And, 
you know, for him and his family, because it is a professional league, he's starting to actually collect some money. He's got to get something out of this life. You know what I mean? He's been putting in so much, sacrificing so much, and, you know, trying to work and raise his family and everything. So I'm just happy for him that he's actually getting some coin. But hopefully next time we'll have a better result, and uh, we'll see what happens. But if that wasn't enough in terms of kind of like rubbing shoulders with uh, combat sports royalty, part of the reason I'm so tired is because I, that was on Friday night, but I got up early Saturday morning, and I got to give a major shout-out to MMT Fitness, Frankie Mercado, as I always do on this show. But this last weekend, man, he made a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity happen. And if you guys aren't familiar with a couple Muay Thai and kickboxing legends, multiple-time world champions, Superbon Banjamek and Petch, I'm not going to say his full name. These names are way too difficult. But uh, if you guys are familiar with these two guys, please do yourself a favor. Go look up a couple highlight videos online. Uh, one championship fighters as of late, but they fought in multiple organizations. Like I said, multiple-time world champions. Uh, I think the only one person that Superbon's lost to is Sidichai, and then he's rematched him twice and beat him both times after that. So this guy is absolutely a savage. They both are. And typically what you guys will see happen is that these kinds of like really elite level uh, practitioners in their field, whether it's jujitsu guys or strikers, Muay Thai legends, they'll go around and they'll do seminars where gyms will open up their gyms to anybody in the area. And, you know, of course, it's a business for them, too, but they'll come through. People will pay a fee and they'll get a couple hours of uh, group training with these guys and just be able to kind of share the mat with them for a little bit. And, you know, since what happened was is there was a cancellation. They were already doing a kind of a tour of the West Coast and they had dates and one of them canceled, Frankie being the sly dog he was. You know, he, he follows all types of Muay Thai elite-level fighters because he wants to just stay up on the sport. He loves the sport. It's a passion of his. So he, of course, was following Superbond, saw that there was a cancellation, reached out to him, basically rebooked it, and, uh, you know, we had to spring. Frankie sprung and spent a bunch of money, and the, the boys kind of chipped in, and we only had less than 48 hours to promote it. So, you know, we just figured, yeah, if, if we don't get a lot a large turnout, then whatever. We could just get the small group training with a couple fucking legends. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what ended up happening. We had a decent show out with only less than 48 hours to market it. So it goes to show you how renowned these guys are. But uh, it was amazing. So we went out there. First time I put on the gear in a very, very long time because of my ear and just everything else. So just to be able to share the mat with these guys, you know, get a little bit of private instruction. There's a YouTube video up on MMT TV. Make sure to check that out. And shouts to Bama. He was my partner, you know, so we were able to go back and forth. They were just giving us kind of some warm-up combinations, some things you could do just to work on your fundamentals and footwork and make sure you're kind of ambidextrous and can do everything from both sides. And then they gave us some combos to drill. And uh, at the end, there was a little bit of flow sparring. And, you know, he kept it pretty under wraps. But if, if you know Frankie for as long as I do, uh, when he was moving around with uh, Superbond for the first round, like, man, these guys were going light. They were just playful and having a good time. But, you know, if I've ever seen Frankie Giddy before, that was, you know, that was the time. So it was a lot of fun. And then Ivan went with Superbond. Logan, I mean, Logan ended up going with these guys uh, to pick him up, first of all, in L.A. in the morning. And then afterwards, went back to L.A. with them, had dinner with them, hung out with, for the, with them for the entire day. He got Petch to, like, write him up a full-on, like, specific training regiment. And he has plans to go out and actually visit and probably stay with them for, you know, maybe even a year or two. He had plans to go out and move to Thailand for a couple years anyways. So now he's got that in in with a couple world champions, a couple of the tip of the spear at this point of the game. So I'm really stoked for Logan and just everybody else. You know, everybody that came down, we had Alex there, we had Griffin there, we had Bryant there, Matt Rojas, Will was there. I mean, everybody, Shadia, Saida. Uh, I mean, uh, Steve Davidson, his son, Max, like we were able to pull together a decent sized group and 
It's just a once in a life, a lifetime opportunity. I can't thank Frankie enough for it. And I know I'm pretty much giving you guys like homework to do, but do go and check out the MMT TV video of that seminar because uh, you'll see your boy who's definitely in need of a tan, but was on there. You know, it definitely did feel good to get out there and just move around a little bit, get the blood flowing and uh, kind of take uh, those little first baby steps back to figuring out some sort of way that I can get back to training because again I don't elaborate too much on the podcast about it but with the situation I got going on with my ear there's additional risks that are there for me that aren't necessarily there for everybody else that I have to consider Um, but that being the case it was a way for me to get out there and and just kind of get going and uh, what a better way to do it or a better time to do it than when you had a couple world champions on the mat so it was a lot of fun, and I'll never forget it. And then real quick, lastly, before I move on and start getting into UFC 269, I got to give a massive shout-out to my boy Wade Plemons, man. This guy is absolutely killing it. Uh, he's got a YouTube channel with a combat sports podcast called The Wade Concept. It's both his name and an acronym for We Are Debating Everything. And, I mean, I just love this guy. I met him in 2019, I believe it was. Uh, he was an MMT for a short stint, working on his boxing skills there. And it was, like, kind of the beginning stages of his podcast and – uh you know, I was inspired to start mine also because of, of him. And, uh, you know, since then till now, he's really carved out a niche for himself. And I felt like especially with the whole Jake Paul era and, and him coming to prominence in the combat sports world, you know, Wade was one of the only people to really put out legitimate boxing breakdowns, even at the beginning when it was, you know, KSI and, and the YouTubers fighting Jake Paul. But he would at least give a legitimate good faith boxing breakdown and so far, he's continued to rise uh, kind of alongside Jake Paul in terms of his notoriety and his exposure. And if you look at his like analytics and his uh, views on his uh, videos that he drops, you know, like 24 hours after they drop, this guy is outpacing a lot of the major players, Jesse on fire, Brendan Schaub, like a lot of the big players in the combat sports world. Wade is just destroying them in terms of views. And he's got a video up right now. It's his second interview with BJ Flores, uh, the boxing coach, the primary head coach of Jake Paul. And I encourage you guys to go on there uh, on his YouTube channel and check out that interview. If you want to drop a comment in the comment section, let him know the DLSS podcast referred you over to him. I'd really appreciate it because, you know, this guy, again, I kind of was inspired to start around the same time that I met him and saw what he was doing. And so I've just been watching him from afar, continuing to encourage him and give him praise because he's absolutely killing it. And uh, I would like it if you guys could go over there and let him know that I encourage people to go and check out his content because it's quality stuff. Wade definitely knows what he's talking about. And for my money, I think, you know, he really approaches these situations in a very good faith way that, you know, whenever the Paul brothers are involved, a lot of people tend to not really be able to see through all the bullshit and uh, really give an objective uh, point of view. So, and if you aren't aware, this weekend was supposed to be Tommy Fury versus Jake Paul. And Tommy Fury fumbled the bag, as Jake Paul put it. And now, last minute with basically a week's notice, that's right, they're going to run it back. Tyron Woodley is stepping in last minute in order to replace Tommy Fury. And him and Jake Paul are going round two this Saturday. So, uh, again, I really encourage you to check out Wade's channel. Check out that interview with BJ Flores. And drop a comment and mention DLSS. I'd really appreciate it. But now, with all that out of the way, we're going to switch gears back to UFC 269. And before I actually dig in and give you guys my thoughts, I actually wanted to ask you for some feedback. I have a potential proposition or something I'm thinking about doing, uh, which is after every major pay-per-view card, so just the numbered pay-per-view cards, I'm thinking about going live on my Instagram after the fights, after they're over, 
and fielding some questions from you guys. I think it would do a number of things simultaneously. I think it would, because I, I could easily record it. I could obviously read the questions aloud and then answer them while I'm recording myself. So then when I'm putting together the recap episode, I can include your guys' questions. I can, you know, answer everything that you specifically want to know instead of just kind of going streamlined through the entire card and giving a little bit of thoughts on everything. I could focus more on what you guys are most interested in. And it serves, you know, as like somewhat of an instant reaction on my part. That way I can just kind of talk about it while it's mostly top of mind and super fresh. And, you know, it allows an engagement factor on, on your guys' side of things because, you know, I'm not going to lie with the amount of people that reach out with through text messages and DMs and stuff like that throughout the night and after crazy outcomes or when the um, night's over and all the fights are finished. If I could just compile that all together, I've essentially put together the recap episode. So it's kind of one plus one equals three, and I think it could be fun. So let me know what you guys think. Uh, if you want to go ahead and shoot me a DM at d.love underscore 84 on Instagram or dlove underscore 84 on Twitter, uh, that'd be cool. But I do prefer, if you can, go on to Apple Podcasts, submit your questions or your feedback through there then that'd be really cool because that does kind of help me with that algorithm there. Hopefully a five-star review. But let me know what you guys think. I, I think it could be fun. That way we could interact a little bit more. And then I could also include you guys in the making of the podcast because obviously you guys are what drive this thing. And uh, if with, without you guys, I wouldn't be here. So I just always want to give back in any way. And uh, there are a lot of people that have questions or comments and stuff like that. So I'd like to include it. So let me know what you guys think. And then going forward, we can kind of do that. And so with that in mind, um, I think I'm actually going to kind of shout out a few people who I was messaging with throughout the night and after the fights were over and just kind of reread their questions and my answers. So kind of almost like a little bit of like a test run and we'll see how it goes and see how, if you guys like this uh, format or not. But before I pull up the first question and get into your guys' questions, I just I have one thing I wanted to address because it wasn't necessarily directly asked which is, uh, you know, some people are, it's not like a contentious argument, but some people are saying it's incorrect or not accurate or recency bias to say that Juliana Pena's win over Amanda Nunes was the biggest uh, upset in mixed martial arts history. Now, depends on how you look at it. If you look at the, from an odds perspective, it's actually third. First place being uh, Ronda Rousey versus Holly Holm, of course. And then second in terms of odds was uh, Matt Serra versus GSP back in the day. And then this one was third, and I think uh, Juliana Pena was around like a plus 650, plus 700 underdog, uh, which, don't get me wrong, that's gigantic underdog, and it was just definitely not expected to win. Nobody in terms of the betting cappers that I follow picked her. I didn't pick her. Like, you know, it's just uh, my shouts to my boy Hank. I don't know if you listen to the podcast, Hank, but my boy Hank just said, screw it. It deserves a little bit of a sprinkle because... You know, anything could happen in the sport, and he ended up profiting from it, so good for him. But besides anybody like that, you know, that just felt like the odds were so long that it was worth it to take a long shot. You know, I didn't really have hear anybody with conviction saying that they definitely thought Juliana Pena was going to win. So with all that being said, though, it, it is the third in terms of the rankings of the biggest upset in terms of odds. Now, in my opinion, I think it actually is the biggest upset in MMA history, definitely in women's MMA history, but... Uh, for instance, like the people who argue that the Matt Serra GSP loss was such a was the, a bigger upset, I would argue that at that point in both of their careers that GSP hadn't gone on like his long reign and established himself as a dominant champion and fully kind of developed his game and skill sets to the point where we knew of him before he retired, retired and consider him the greatest of all time like we do now. He hadn't accrued that career and that those accolades and that time on the vine proving his dominance and you know maturing and getting gaining all that experience 
that was earlier on in his in his title reign and in his career. And then as far as Ronda Rousey is concerned, like, you know, it's widely understood that she was definitely ahead of her time in terms of the depth of the women's, uh, especially the women's bantamweight division in the UFC, and that with her standard, her specialized skill set of judo that she was able to kind of run through girls. But the reality is it was almost just the nature of this, the timing and the circumstance that put her in such a dominant position. And she hadn't really reigned for all that long, albeit her... Uh, finishes were very dominant and she was finishing girls left and right but her crossover celebrity and her you know exposure and likability to the casual fan base you know she was the first one to go on like uh, i think yeah it was conan o'brien she went on and i think she also went on ellen so uh you know anybody who knows anything about like gambling or, or betting lines like that line was extremely inflated so in terms of like the betting odds yes it's still at number one but in terms of like overall uh circumstances surrounding just the environment and the sport the environment and the division the amount of like reign that she had held over the division and don't get me wrong there's like i, I don't know it kind of sounds ridiculous to belittle a, a single world championship versus multiple because you know i've never held anything close to anything like that so i don't mean it in that way but she was only the bantamweight champion so for me, with Amanda Nunes being the double champ, first female double champ, first double champ in history, actually successfully going back and forth and defending both titles in both weight classes, yes, that is similar to the Ronda Rousey situation because the featherweight division in the women's uh, UFC is very thin, but uh, that doesn't matter in this case because in terms of accolades, in terms of her overall dominance in the division for the amount of time that she's been doing it, over two divisions. I mean, as good as Ronda Rousey was, no one was really saying, calling her the GOAT. You know what I'm saying? Like, women's GOAT. Like, they have been. Like, before this fight, everyone and their mother, Joe Rogan included, would say that Amanda Nunes was the consensus women's greatest fighter of all time. Obviously, Kayla Harrison sitting cage side and ended up getting the bag fumbled on her behalf when Amanda lost. Probably had something uh, to say about that. But all told, in terms of the macro, like, understanding of the sport, the amount of accolades that uh, Amanda Nunes held and the amount of reverence that she demanded from, you know, not only the fan base and the media, but fellow fighters as well. Like, to me, this was just uh, the most unexpected, even if the the odds didn't necessarily reflect it. Again, Ronda Rousey was, the, those numbers were inflated because of her marketability to the casual fan base. So, you know, if it was just based on merit, and I think it's not even a question that Juliana Pena would have been a bigger underdog. Uh, than Holly Holm was to Ronda Rousey. And of course, hindsight is 2020, Holly Holm shouldn't have been a f- underdog to Ronda Rousey, which I feel like kind of almost proves my point about those odds being extremely inflated because, you know, of her popularity, you know, especially at that time, especially at that time for where women's mixed martial arts was. She was really a trailblazer in that sense. And before her, you obviously had Gina Carano in Strike Force. Got to give shouts to her. Uh, Kevin Ross's longtime, you know, kind of basically wife. And uh, but aside from that, like, you know, it's just it is what it is. And I think that if you really look at it and the merits of the case and how much farther along the women's martial arts divisions have gotten in terms of skill, depth and just overall talent, that this fight was a larger upset, in my opinion, than either of those other two. So neither GSP or Ronda Rousey was considered the go at the time that they lost and they were neither double champions. So. To me, when you add in all the accolades that Amanda Nunes had, Juliana Pena beating her, I feel like is the largest upset in mixed martial arts history. And if, if you want to press me on that, then that's all good. But I, I, th- I think you can't argue it's definitely the biggest upset in women's mixed martial arts history. And then, you know, GSP versus Sarah, all in, albeit in hindsight, seems like it was an amazing upset. And it really was. No, you know, no discrediting what Matt Sarah was able to do. But, uh, you know, in the grander scheme of things, 
I think it's uh, pretty much a no-brainer. But to move on from that and kind of give my thoughts on how it ended up happening, like how did Juliana Pena, who even in hindsight, even after the fact, even when they're going to book uh, an immediate rematch, I think Amanda Nunes is going to be favored in the immediate rematch. So how did Juliana Pena get it done, right? And so for this one, uh, to answer this question, I'm going to give a shout-out to my boy Malcolm, who didn't necessarily submit a question per se, at least not at the beginning. He just replied with like a crying emoji to the post I put on my story for Juliana Pena getting the win. There's a tremendous picture of her landing a clean overhand right on Amanda and really busting her up. So uh, he responded with that emoji, and I said this to a lot of people. Basically, everyone that hit me up about Amanda Nunez, Juliana Pena, I replied with this message first, and it was, simply put, fatigue makes cowards of us all. It's a famous quote. You've heard it before, but it is 100% true, right? And Malcolm replied to that by saying, I've never heard a more accurate statement for a situation. And, uh, you know, I feel like it's an, a great example of that. And uh, I'll, let me go on. To he, I said that Amanda gave 0% respect to Pena, and she basically just tried to walk through her, and she paid for it. And I know my boy Malcolm is working a couple jobs. He's all over the place, so he, I guess, didn't have a chance to watch it live. And he said, damn, I only saw that last exchange. I didn't see the moments leading up. That shit is wild. And I said... Um, or and then he went on to say, hopefully it's a humbling moment and not for not a defining moment for Nunez. So it's not like the Ronda Rousey effect. See, he's talking about that, which I, I'll say right now, I, that's not a fair comparison because Nunez has already lost a few times and bounced back. She's shown mental resilience and it's just not the same thing. So I'm not worried about that per se with Nunez, but I responded with, hey, it's not a long fight. You can go ahead and rewatch it. But I said after the grappling exchanges in the first round, uh, even though she won that round, I felt like her arms got gassed. And then the second, she didn't adjust to not being able to just put her out with one shot. She just kept going for it, expecting a different result. Even though Pena was showing to be more durable than she expected. And then eventually, after she pretty much gassed herself out, trying to knock her out. And when she wasn't able to, Pena ended up being the fresher fighter down the stretch. And the momentum slowly started to sway. And then next thing you know, like, this is one of my favorite fights in terms of the commentary. It actually has feels of uh, Conor McGregor versus Nate Diaz won because a similar thing happened where you could kind of see the momentum shifting. Granted, that was after Nate landed a clean shot, but this fight almost had the same feels where they were landing multiple jabs. They were trading jabs, and they were like in the center of the cage, and then slowly Pena started to push Amanda back, and you could tell Amanda's, Amanda's face went from uh, that creepy, malicious smile that she's got to slowly like, okay, now she's straight-faced. Now she's like wide-eyed and starting to look worried, and she's backing up, so... It was just incredible. You could see the momentum just like slowly shift from Amanda wasn't working. And then Pena was like, okay, well, I'm going to keep pushing forward. And then you saw it all play out from there. She eventually had her up against the fence. Amanda was covering up after taking a bunch of hard shots. Pena took her straight to the ground. And then, you know, it didn't take much. People do talk about the choke not being that sunk in. But again, when you're that fatigued, you just want to get out of there. You're literally, that's why they use the analogy drowning. You feel like you're drowning, which is another reason I chose Malcolm to answer this question be with because, you know, he does, is a jujitsu player. He absolutely knows exactly what I'm talking about is that like the level of fatigue that your opponent has, uh, it's going to have an effect on how hard you have to work for your submission. And so at that point, Juliana, um, yeah, Juliana was like pretty much halfway under the neck and hadn't even sunk both hooks in. And Amanda was 
pretty much like already out of breath before the choke was even sunk in. And I know the rear naked choke is more of a blood choke, but at that point, Manda was pretty much done for when she got taken to the ground. She was so gassed already that it just really didn't take much to finish it off. And so with messaging with Malcolm, I went on to say that it's a huge lesson for all the fighters who will choose to, to see it, right? Not all fighters are going to take the lessons from it, but even if like the GOAT, quote unquote, or, or any legitimate fighter more talented than the other fighter, if they can put themselves in that spot and lose, like it's possible for anybody to make poor decisions and put themselves in that spot to lose. And so I went on to say that like fight IQ is a part of a skill set, in my opinion. And it's not just how you do things, but like when you do them, when not to, when to, you know, keep a pace, when to pull back, when to get on your bike, when to be, you know, sit down on your punches, when to go for it, when to, you know, all these things are part of decision making, when to try to attempt takedowns or not, or where to take a fight, given your skill set and your opponents, all these things are a part of fight IQ and, you know, adjusting when someone just doesn't crumble in front of you. That's something that championship fighters need to be able to do and most of the time do, which is their ability to adjust in the fight. And Malcolm replied and said, dude, fight IQ is one of the most important skill sets of a fighter in his opinion. And he says he thinks it separates a good fighter from a great fighter, which I 100% agree with. And he says he also feels like higher fight IQ fighters last longer. They have more longevity. And I'll add to that that they normally end up at the end of their career with better brain health. And that actually makes me want to bring up just a quick tangent. I wanted to give a big shout to Dominic Cruz for turning back the clock. He gets a big win over Pedro Munoz after getting dropped in the first round and facing some really tough adversity. And he was able to push through, come back and win the second and third rounds pretty definitively. And uh, that's what we're talking about. Fight IQ, elusiveness, fighting in a way that's not just a brawler and... Uh, you know, preserves brain health. And don't get me wrong, like I said earlier, part of that fight IQ is knowing when to do and when not to do things. So sometimes there is the right time to sit down on your punches, sit in the pocket and exchange and, and try to put your opponent out. But some fighters, they approach the game predominantly with an elusive movement-based style. And uh, for Dominic Cruz, it's really taking a toll on his uh, plantar fasciitis, his ankles, his feet, and his knees, which makes sense with his uh, movement patterns and, the, and the, his style. But uh, congratulations to him for going back in time and making it look uh, pretty much like vintage Dominic Cruz. I did talk to Matt Rojas, shouts to him a little bit about this and how Pedro Munoz is a little bit more linear. He's a little bit more traditional in terms of his uh, striking skill set. Plus, with the reach and distance and mobility, Dominic Cruz in the 30-foot octagon can most likely get that decision. Got a little dicey in the first round, but he ended up getting it done. Sorry, quick tangent based on that fight IQ uh, topic. But with messaging with Malcolm, I went on to say I said all those things are, are part of fight IQ. And also a person's temperament. Like, you know, everyone's got a little bit different, like, attitude or approach to the game or mental space that they have to be in in order to get the best out of them. And I said not everyone's a quote-unquote cerebral fighter, but they got to be smarter than what Amanda was doing. I said, like, I was flipping out as I could see it kind of, like, unfolding. And it was incredible for Pena, but it was also incredibly disappointing to see Amanda fight emotionally and, and not adjust. So absolutely taking nothing away from Juliana Pena. She was the rightful winner of that fight. She is the rightful Bantamweight champion. And, you know, it's just, I think, skill for skill, Amanda Nunes is still technically the better fighter. But part of executing is, like, you know, not necessarily getting over-emotional and, you know, making those correct judgment calls and fight IQ decisions. And Amanda did not do that in that fight. So, therefore... Even though she might have the more technical ability, she was not the better fighter on the night. So congratulations to Juliana Pena. However, I do feel Amanda will be favored in the rematch, and rightly so. 
She's probably going to have a chip on her shoulder from this. She says she's definitely not retiring, quote-unquote, unbalanced, which I think was awesome. And with everybody, all parties involved, including Juliana, saying that the immediate rematch is inevitable, uh, we'll be really interested to see how the second meeting goes. But for now, again, congratulations to Juliana Pena on, in my opinion, the biggest upset in mixed martial arts history and on being the new Bantamweight champion of the world. And then before I move on, i got to break down the fourth wall a little bit. Not sure if you could tell it in my voice, but it's actually the following day. You know, just a second ago when I was talking about Amanda Nunes and Juliana Pena. Yeah, that was actually like 4.50 in the morning this morning uh, when I had to cut it. And, you know, I just needed to get some sleep and I had some shit to do today. And shouts to Mac Noodle Sabachi Chef and Mac Noodle Sabachi Grill. Just came back from working another event with him. I uh, appreciate him giving me the opportunity to do that. And, you know, had a little 16 top out there in Santa Ana. It was a great night. These guys had a full-on mariachi band there and everything. It was a... Hell of a good time passing around shots. These guys know how to party. But again, shouts to Mac Noodles Hibachi Grill. If you guys want that, just let me know. I'm sure if you tell them DLSS sent you, they give you a little, little bit of a discount there. But Hibachi Backyard, Front Yard, Garage, you know, whatever. So just let them know and we make it happen. But yeah, I just got home from that a little bit ago. Made myself some food. And I'm sitting down in my chair. It's 10 minutes after midnight. Got my coffee and I'm ready to go. And I'm locked in. Going to knock out the rest of the show. And then hopefully by uh, sunrise I'll be able to post it for you guys. Which my bad. And sorry about the timeliness of the episode. I know it's going to be dropping a little bit late in the week this week again. But we're going to get you those picks before the fight starts, And that's the most important. But now burying the lead. Damn. Fucking 30 minutes into the show. I do want to talk obviously about the main event. Dustin Poirier loses to Charles Oliveira. Third round submission. Standing guillotine. Charles Oliveira. Adding to his submission record, his overall finishing record, and defending the lightweight uh, title for the very first time, which a lot of people say, you know, you're not the champ until you defend it. And uh, he definitely, in my opinion, solidified himself. And when before, I feel like he wasn't necessarily getting the respect he deserved in the greater fight community amongst the fighters and fans as a whole. But a lot of people consider Dustin Poirier the uncrowned champ. So for him to go out there and do that to him, I really think he finally established himself as the king, and we all should give him that respect, which I know that Poirier and his camp didn't underestimate uh, Oliveira. He's just the better man on the night, you know. They approached this fight with the game plan of making sure at all costs that not letting Oliveira get to their back, you know, if they even got into a bad position. Like, I, I think if people gave Dustin Poirier too much crap for being willing to burn that second round and just stay on his back with a closed guard because, you know, it was actually his concerns were proven right in the very next round when Charles Oliveira did secure the back. He was able to sink in the choke and get the finish. So, you know, a lot of people gave Dustin Poirier crap about that. But, you know, he did mention and the commentators uh, spoke on it as well that in the Khabib fight, he was worried about losing a round and made a poor decision trying to kind of force or rush the, a stand up. And, you know, if, if he needed to burn around instead of lose the fight, he was willing to learn from that mistake. And, you know, credit to him that he stuck to his guns. He stayed disciplined. He took a couple of hard elbows on the ground. But when the second round was over, stood back up. You know, I felt like he had a short-term memory about it. Went back out in the third round ready to go. But does Charles Oliveira, you know, is too dangerous in all aspects of the game now. And uh, after his Tony Ferguson fight, we all got put on notice that he's uh, put together a wrestling game, uh, a wrestling base underneath his lights-out jiu-jitsu. And we all know that his uh, striking, his Muay Thai has come a long way. So he's dangerous everywhere. And uh, I kind of alluded to it at the beginning of the show, but... There were a few people privately that, although, of course, I was going to support Dustin Poirier and, and he was my pick for this fight, that I was concerned because Oliveira is a savage as well. Both of them are the man, you know, so just it's one of those things where one guy's got to win, one guy's got to lose. Shouts to my boy Ian Dooley because I was talking to him about not only this fight but all the fights, and I sent him, like, that uh, 
theater or drama face where it has one happy face and one sad face. And I just said every damn time, you know, because for the most part, you watch this sport long enough and that's how it ends up going. You know, one guy's got to win, one guy's got to lose. And so at the end of the day, I'm always both happy and sad for both of them. And that's just how it goes. And of course, you're going to be, you know, extremely disappointed. You got to be gutted for Dustin Poirier. You know, I thought that the stars were aligning and he was going to walk away undisputed world champion. But these guys have both very similar paths, in fact, and they've both taken a very long road to get where they're at. And, you know, you got to be stoked. You got to be happy for Charles Oliveira, too. You know, from the favelas of Brazil, like really down to the dumps, dirt poor to the champion of the world, not only champion of the world, but, you know, able to secure legitimacy after taking out someone like Dustin Poirier. So you got to be stoked for him, too. And the way I'm going to transition and talk about my conversation with CJ is two different things. One, actually shout out to his friend Aaron, who sent him a screenshot of their conversation, basically just pointing out that, you know, he loves Charles Oliveira. You got to give it to him, but you got to acknowledge the glove grab. You got to point it out because, you know, in the second round, uh, to this guy Aaron's point, they completely changed the momentum of that round and the fight because Dustin Poirier was coming on in the first and, you know, he was almost in a, uh, out of danger and, you know, going to be either having Charles stand back up or at least be in top position. And, you know, Dustin Poirier felt like his arm was trapped in that arm of Plata and, and all, Charlie Olives was bringing him into something dangerous. So he made a split-second decision. I will say it was the wrong one, but tried to roll forward to break the grip and ended up on bottom, which that entire rest of that second round, he was on the bottom. So it was pretty damn significant and definitely changed the course of the fight. But this is the thing I'll say about that is that, you know, in terms of fouls, which... You know, I, I hate to say if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, but this is literally cage fighting. Like, we're not playing tennis here. I'm not sure if you guys ever heard the expression Rubbin's Racing, but, you know, that dates my old ass, about to be 37 at the end of this month. That's a quote from the movie Days of Thunder. But at the end of the day, fighters are just going to respond to whatever incentive structures are put in front of them, and they're going to do whatever they can to get a leg up or an advantage. And don't get me wrong, I'm not like full-on endorsing just a full disregard of the rules, but to follow up on what CJ and I were saying after he sent me that picture of his conversation with his homie, CJ just kind of went down the list and, and uh, gave examples of several different fights where Herb Dean was the ref and there was like noticeable blatant glove grabs like when Connor and Khabib fought and like when Connor and Dustin fought the second time uh he was on his back and grabbing the glove and trying to pull Dustin into an upkick and all those fights Herb Dean was the ref and you know he was just giving him the fair criticism saying he that he was the gold standard but you know as of late he's been fucking up a lot and I've talked about that recently on the podcast as well and that I don't know what it is but he's definitely become way more indecisive and that's the last thing you want as a referee. It's like one of those things when you have a grandma who's driving extra slow, thinking she's being safe, but she's actually making a way more dangerous situation. Like, you need to be decisive. It's a split-second decision. It's the toughest job in the sport. And, of course, yeah, unfortunately, it's thankless and you're going to get criticism. But that's the job, and you have to worry more about the fighters than your reputation or the potential backlash. And that's kind of what I think has uh, happened over the course of the last couple of years. Herb has received some uh, fair but uh, tough criticism at times, you know, and he's, I feel like now he's in his own head. He's thinking about the outside world and their perception of what's going on instead of being 100% present and then just making the call when he feels it's right. So that indecisiveness is what's fucking things up. And whether or not it's Herb Dean or whatever ref it is, in terms of the like hierarchy of fouls, shouts to Chad Dundas and the co-main event podcast once again because they call it Dundasso. Like, you're, you're getting a, a warning in the back when the ref's going over the rules with you. So I argue that that's the first warning. But most of the time, if it's a glove uh, grab or if it's a fence grab or you're grabbing on your opponent's shorts or if it's an eye poke or a groin kick, 
most times you're going to get at least one warning, at least one. And we've seen in the past that sometimes certain, you know, grabbing of the fence or things like that, prohibit, you know, keep someone from getting a takedown. And that really could have been the entire difference in the fight. So sometimes it is really significant. I feel like, you know, uh, fence grab is up there uh, with glove grabbing or with uh, grabbing of the shorts and stuff like that. And then I feel like, you know, way at the top is like groin shots and eye pokes or, you know, kneeing or kicking an opponent while they're considered a downed opponent or and things like that. Like, I feel like not to say that, you know, they're not both breaking the rules, but typically I would consider something like a glove grab or grabbing of your shorts or, or your opponent's shorts or something like that to be a, a minor infraction, even maybe even below a fence grab or something like that. But and I'm not saying that it didn't have an effect on the fight, but it's just one of those things I feel like you fight long enough. Dustin Poirier is a veteran of this game. You know, there's going to be times where there's going to be glove grabs. There's going to be things that you're going to have to deal with inside that chaos and if you need to call on the ref to grab their attention to it that's what you got to do but you know he's a fighter's fighter and he was just looking for an option to get out of it unfortunately he made the wrong call and ended up paying for it at the end of the day I don't necessarily you know hold it against uh, Charles Oliveira too much I just feel like it's something that's you know in the in the realm of uh, just kind of common if you ain't cheating you ain't trying and and that's just the way I look at it of course I was rooting for Dustin Poirier so I would definitely be someone who'd think would be kind of upset and, and up in arms about it. But I understand the fight game. I understand what these guys have to do, deal with while they're in there. And that's part of it. It's, it's a gray area, you know. Boxing, they do it. Like, in any opportunity, a fighter's going to do what they can get away with in order to get ahead. And I guess I just consider that part of the sport. And as long as referees, Herb Dean or otherwise, continue to just repeatedly warn fighters without actually taking points, then they're going to continue to do what they can get away with. And, you know, you got to give credit to, like, Chris Tognoni and uh, Jason Herzog and Mike Beltran, a couple of these uh, referees that, you know, weren't as high profile as, say, a Herb Dean or a John McCarthy, but have been getting more uh, exposure lately and getting higher and higher profile fights, and I feel like they're doing a bang-up job. Some of these uh, refs are taking points right away and letting people know that that shit's not going to fly if I'm refing your fight. So it's kind of a gray area. It's up to the ref to enforce it. And even though it happened and it was unfortunate, you know, you don't necessarily hear Dustin Poirier complaining too much about it. So I feel like most of the time for most fighters, they just kind of take it is what it is mentality approach and they just know they got to deal with certain things. And uh, that's that's just the way it goes sometimes. But to move on, you know, congratulations once again to Charles Oliveira. Great job. And I'll be looking to see who's going to face in his uh, second title defense. And to continue on with my conversation with CJ about this fight and just kind of like what's next for these guys uh, on Monday he just out of the blue he's like hey how do you think Dustin earns his way back or does he just break Connor and then go up to 170 that was CJ's text to me and then he's like I'm sure that's something you're gonna address in the podcast but I can't wait and well there you go I'm gonna do it at the same time I basically replied to him said I'm not sure only because there's so many different options and like what what weight is it gonna be at and he's talked about before he doesn't want to cut weight anymore. He wants to go up to 170. I, I assumed if he won that fight, he was going to take that belt and go up to 170, have a few fun like super fights and money fights, and then call it a day, uh, but call it a career, right? So he didn't win the fight, but if you saw his uh, interview on Ariel Hawani, he definitely did seem like uh, he was explicitly saying he doesn't feel like cutting that weight no more. And I was texting with CJ, and I said, I think Dustin Poirier versus Nate for Nate's last fight of his contract would be the play. Like, that's... That's what I want for both these guys. It's a money fight for Dustin as well as Nate's last fight of his contract so he can go do his thing in Triller or against Jake Paul at Showtime or whatever the hell and, you know, just make the uh, biggest money of his career and just, you know, kind of glide off into the sunset after his UFC career, which, you know, in the UFC, they're trying to put him up against Hasman or some up-and-young killer 
to try to make it like not such a not so ceremonious ending for his career because that's the way the the industry works that's the way the ufc does it it's cutthroat they want to build you up all the way uh, on the way on the rise you know and squeeze as much money out as you as possible and then if uh, your career is done or if you're trying to move on to other places they want to devalue you as much as possible on the way out so it's not in the ufc's best interest to give nate a winnable fight in his last fight so i think this checks all the boxes and uh, dustin poirier and nate both have leverage because of their drawing power and the potential money that that fight could bring in and so i think there should be dustin poirier versus nate diaz for nate's last fight of his contract and Dustin Poirier in his first fight up at 170. And uh, that was what I said to CJ. And then I also said, you know, Connor being in the division and just in general, you know, he's 190 pounds right now. But him being lurking in the background at, at all times makes it, you know, difficult to see what will end up happening. And then I laid it out like this. I said, Gaethje versus Oliveira, obviously. Chandler versus the loser of Darius versus Makachev. And then Dustin versus Nate. And then Connor versus Tony. I think that's the way to go. Tony deserves a money fight, too. He deserves a red panty night. That's definitely a winnable fight for Connor to bounce back. I think Tony isn't, you know, completely washed like a lot of other people think, but I think that's a competitive fight, and Tony does tend to get hit. So if Connor lands clean early on anybody, you know, that could be lights out. So I feel like that makes sense for that upper, you know, five through, uh, you know, one through seven of the division because it's kind of log jam. But we got a clear number one contender in Justin Gaethje, and I think the rest of it kind of makes sense. And then I said the same lineups that I just outlined, but also you could do it where if you swap Nate and Connor, so like Nate versus Tony and Connor versus Dustin, you know, because obviously there's the history there. Uh, Nate could uh, face Connor. Obviously, that trilogy is always luring out there, looming out there. So, you know, in that case, where does Dustin face Tony? I'm not sure, but. I kind of like the the matchups that I laid out there. And then, wouldn't you know it, Nate and Dustin were going back and forth on Twitter today, beefing, talking mad shit to each other, calling each other out explicitly at 170. So, you know, I think, you know, I, I sent CJ a, a screenshot of the tweets and a picture of a crystal ball because, you know, I, that's what I thought was the best option for all parties involved, makes the most money and is the most exciting fight. You know, the only thing that would have been standing in front of that is the UFC not one to give Nate a potentially high-profile somewhat you know winnable fight in his last fight but i think it's just too appealing all around and and mark my words i think they're gonna book it and if you look at nate's twitter he said he'll fight him in january so we'll see man that's ufc 271 i was saying this entire time that that fight card was missing a diaz brother they're fighting in their home state you know basically right up the fucking coast and i'm going to that one so please dear god i hope they book that fight you know i, I don't know if dustin will take it with that much of a short turnaround i'm not saying he got out of that fight with Oliveira 100% unscathed but it wasn't like a five round drawn out war and he's talking about doing it up at 170 but that might be a, a little bit bridge too far for him to turn around that fast so we'll see how it goes but a man can dream right and then moving on damn I didn't even realize we're 46 minutes in I've only covered like two fights plus a little bit about Dominic Cruz so and plus we got I got to recap the points for the predictions challenge for the last time of the year after the break there and look ahead give you guys my picks for the final UFC card of the year Derek Lewis taking on Chris Dalkus in the main event. So I got to try to kind of hurry up and uh, burn through the rest of the results of UFC 269. Uh, and, I mean, I feel bad because it was a hell of a fight card. There was nine finishes on the night. I haven't even touched on Kai Car France. He knocked out Cody Garbrandt in the very first round. He kind of overwhelmed him with feints and fakes. Ended up landing a hard overhand right, rocking him. And then that was the beginning of the end. 
Sean O'Malley ends up taking out Julian Pavia, first round KO, 4 minutes 42 seconds. And even though he made it look easy, this was without a doubt his most difficult test up to this point. I mean, he didn't make it seem that way, but it's the, it's the truth. I mean, uh, Kyler Phillips, who got beat by Julian Pavia in Pavia's last fight, is legit as fuck as well. So uh, O'Malley did what he needed to do, kept it at range, ended up taking him out uh, inside the first round. Josh Emmett takes out Dan Ige in unanimous decision. This fight I felt like was very uh, fairly close. Dan Ige in overall total strikes outstrike, uh, outstruck him 70-60. to 60. But Josh Emmett's every time he landed the strikes, it kind of snapped uh, Ige's head back. They were the, mo- the more uh, noteworthy strikes, and he ended up getting the job done. As I mentioned, Dominic Cruz has a throwback performance that takes out Pedro Munoz by unanimous decision. And then Bam Bam, tied to Avasa, quintessential to Avasa, takes out Augusto Sakai 26 seconds into the second round. Man, Tuivasa is leveling up. I don't know if you guys noticed because he's you know, got his uh, larger-than-life persona walking out to Barbie Girl, jumping on top of the cage and doing shoeies every time he wins, which is hilarious. I love the guy. He's also a hell of a fighter, and you can tell he's been taking things serious. He got really far on just being a tough son of a bitch from down under, but now he's really taking it serious and leveling up his game. And to me, it's really shined through in his last few performances, and this one, it, he was very patient. And he made sure to pick his shots, and he, you know, he does what he does when he lands clean, and he and he bombs on guys. So, congrats to Tuivasa for getting the job done. Bruno Silva takes out Jordan Wright in an insane drop-down, drag-out war in the first round. Man, these guys never make it out of the fight. Like there was no chance this fight was going to decision. Didn't even get out of the first round. One minute, twenty-eight seconds. After Jordan Wright was putting on Bruno Silva, Bruno Silva ends up rocking Jordan Wright with a counter. I think it was a left hook, and then he ends up walking him down and taking him out. It was bonkers for the short time it, it went down Andre Muniz gets an arm bar over Eric Anders now that's I think two or three arm bars in the UFC definitely two in a row with his submission of Jacare Souza this guy is a force on the mat and he's big and powerful and he, he's not a slouch on the feet as well so another big win for Andre Muniz and then congratulations to Aaron Blanchfield ma'am I think Miranda Maverick is a beast and a future title contender in this division and Aaron Blanchfield in her second fight in the UFC she made it look easy she took down Maverick every single round Maverick had no answer for her she, her top pressure was incredible and Maverick just couldn't get out of it, and uh, she had very short stints on the feet, and even in those exchanges, Blanchfield did not look like a fish out of water. She looked like she knew what she was doing, but she was smart enough to to utilize those strikes in order to get it to her bread and butter and take her to the mat, and she just dominated pillar to post. She's only like 23 years old or something like that, so she's definitely someone to keep an eye on, and so is Miranda Maverick, so a great win for Aaron Blanchfield. Then Ryan the Wizard Hall, man. I thought Derek Minner's wrestling and top control was going to be able to keep him safe, and make it a boring fight that he was going to end up winning basically by control or, you know, controlling Ryan Hall or controlling the positioning for the majority of the fight. But he had none of it. Ryan Hall was able to offset the base. Even when Minner ended up, you know, in the scrambles, he would end up on top. But Ryan Hall was able to control the base. Butterfly guard ended up going for a sweep, going for an ankle, and just continuing to make Minner work and scramble the entire time. There was at one point in the third round that Ryan Hall had, like, I think three plus minutes of uh, the mount position and just, you know, uh, Minner couldn't do anything. He was stuck. He couldn't get out from under him. So ended up Ryan Hall in total strikes because of the ground strikes. Outstruck Minner 40 to 26 and takes a unanimous decision. Then Tony Kelly gets a big upset over Randy Costa. Man, I don't know what to tell you, man. Randy Costa, he looked like he knew he needed to shore up after his last fight. But Tony Kelly, you know, the blueprint was out on Costa and he went straight to work. First round, closed the distance, put him up against the fence. Didn't let Costa work at all in that first round when he's normally explosive and fast. Tired out the arms, tired out the gas tank, and then just kept going to it in the second round. Took him down early. Ended up getting the TKO finish in the second round by elbows. So 
Congratulations to Tony Kelly. This guy, you know, him and uh, Brandon Davis look a hell of a lot like each other. But Tony Kelly, I think, is going to have more success in the end because in the short time of the UFC, he's looked like a force. And he looks like he's only getting better. And then the opening fight, Jillian Robertson. Man, I thought Priscilla Cacha beating or Cacha cheating. I mean, Cachaguera was going to be someone that was going to be too big, too physical to be able to have Jillian Roberts be able to, like, manhandle her and ragdoll her, take her to the ground. And I felt like if Robertson wasn't going to be able to get it to the ground, she wasn't going to be able to, to win this fight. But turns out Robertson is a savage, uh, hence the nickname. Got her to the ground, and even after trying to get eye-poked blatantly by Priscilla Cheating a couple times from the back position, uh, Jillian Roberts, with one second left in the round, ends up securing the submission and the rear naked choke. So she gets it done. So in the end, and in hindsight, ended up being one that I was happy to be wrong with. So congratulations to Jillian Robertson. But that wraps up my thoughts for UFC 269, guys. Give me one just quick second. We're going to take a break. Come back. We're going to quickly recap the points for the predictions challenge for the last time this year before the final fights this weekend. Derek Lewis taking on Chris Dawkins. So I got my picks as well. So stay put. We'll be right back. What's up? We are back. You're listening to episode 113 of the DLSS podcast or the DLSS Picks podcast, episode 11. But regardless of whichever one you clicked on, thank you guys so much for joining me. We are here to give my picks for UFC Fight Night. Derek Lewis taking on Chris Dalkus in the final event of the year. And there's a few other fun matchups on the card. In the co-main event, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson's taking on Bilal Muhammad. Then Amanda Lemos is taking on Angela Hill. Hafiawa Sunsell, Ricky Simone. So a bunch of fun matchups. We got Cub Swanson taking on Derek Elkins. So it should be a fun enough fight knife card to wrap up 2021. But before we get into the picks, you know what we got to do for the last time this year. Got to recap the points for the predictions challenge. Hey, all right, all right. So nearly 12 months have gone by, almost 460 fights, and it all comes down to these last couple weeks. And after showing signs of life a couple weeks ago with Nate chipping away at the lead, I think I may have just put the nail in the coffin with this week. Didn't do all that great, but I did good enough. Obviously got the main event wrong because I went with Fourier. But in the co-main event, Jeff Neal was a slight underdog, so I got two points with him. Sean O'Malley ended up getting me a point, styling on Julian Pavia. Josh Emmett in a close decision against Dan Ige ended up getting me one point there. And then Dominic Cruz, make sure you guys are checking out those Instagram posts on my story on Saturday because I did end up switching. Went with the underdog there. He turned back the clock and got me two points. Tied to Avasa, did a shoey on the cage and got me one point. And then Bruno Silva got me a point. Andre Muniz got me a point. And I did end up shitting the bed on Garbrandt, Maverick, Minner, Costa, Cachoeira. And I think everyone and their mother, including that guy that over 300 Gs on Nunez, ended up tearing up a ticket. I bet he was pissed. So wrapping up the week and adding additional four points to my overall overall lead ended up coming away with first place with nine points bring the overall year to date point totals as follows still in first 327 points nate's in second place with 15 point gap at 312 jose is in last place 296 and i got a win loss total on the year of 263 wins 186 losses six draws and four no contests and if you know me i'm not necessarily a braggadocious guy i'm not one to count my chickens before they hatch or take a victory lap but you know i mean there was a point in time in this year 2021 that i was down i believe over 30 points behind jose who was uh, commanding a big lead at the time early on in the year so told jose at the time just be patient it's a very long year i was gonna bring it home i knew those chickens were gonna come home to roost baby in first place i don't i don't care man i don't care what you think i'm gonna go ahead and play this shit now Thank you, thank you. Yes, it's been a long road. I appreciate it. I want to thank my girlfriend, Nora, 
or sacrificing sleep with me yelling at a microphone at all hours of the night. Really appreciate you, babe. Thanks for putting up with my craziness. But on a serious note, and from the bottom of my heart, I really just want to make sure to thank absolutely nobody. Because this shit ain't over yet. We got one more week. UFC fight night. Derek Lewis taking on Chris Dawkins. So now it's time for the picks. It's a 14 fight offering. And opening up the card, we have Jordan Levitt as a minus 125 favorite to the plus 105 underdog in Matt Sales. Matt Sales, in my opinion, is more well-rounded. He's more dangerous on the feet. Uh, Jordan Levitt has elite-level jiu-jitsu. At least so far, he's shown very high-level grappling. Uh, he's only lost one fight in the UFC. He's 8-1 and one in overall. That's uh, for Jordan Levitt. Matt Sales is 8-3 overall, but again, faced that tougher competition, in my opinion. The only X factor here is Matt Sales is coming off, I think, almost a two-year layoff. And his most recent fight, uh, yeah, almost two years ago, he lost to Bryce Mitchell by Twister. So there is a somewhat a, of a defensive liability in terms of the submissions there. But he has a couple submission wins of his own, Matt Sales does. So hopefully he's going to be able to stay safe with this lesser experienced fighter in Jordan Levitt. And I could easily see Levitt taking him to the ground and getting the sub, but I feel like predominantly Matt Sales is a sprawler and brawler, and if that layoff isn't uh, too much of a factor, I think he's going to get the win here. The odds do slightly change sometimes, as you guys know. So right now, Matt Sales is a very slight underdog, so I'm going to go with those underdog points here. Got to check the weigh-ins as well, and if the numbers, uh, the odds flip, I might end up switching because it's kind of a 50-50 fight. But for now, going with Matt Sales to get the win. Moving up the card to the second fight of the night, Minus 190 favorite, Dontel Mays, taking on the plus 160 underdog for Josh Parisian. Got heavyweights in the second fight of the night. And I don't want to insult the guys, but middling heavyweights, you know, kind of up and down uh, results in the actual UFC. You know, had big wins in the regional scene and a couple contender series fighters. So they're facing off against each other, both actually coming off a win against a mutual opponent in Roque Martinez. Split decision for Parisian and unanimous for Dontel Mays. So, you know, I don't know how much you could take from that. So this, I think, is kind of a coin flip. You just toss up here. These boys, I feel like, are going to bang. It is the smaller octagon. So uh, I am going to go with Dontel Mays here. I think he's a little bit sharper, a little bit more technical and crisper on the feet. And I think this fight, for the most part, is going to be on the feet. It's a smaller octagon at the apex. So I think these guys are going to have to fight it out. And I think Dontel Mays, at some point, is probably going to end up clipping him and end up coming out on top. So give me Dontel Mays in the second fight of the night. Moving on, we have Rocky Raquel Pennington versus Macy Chason. 7-1 Chason versus the 12-8 Rocky Pennington. The odds on this one are actually a little surprising for me, in my opinion. But uh, Rocky is the favorite, but just slightly at a minus 165. Plus 145 for Macy Chason, who I do think is a live underdog in this spot because, you know, matchup styles make fights. She's a little bit longer. She likes to utilize those long push kicks and stuff like that. But again, smaller octagon, I think Raquel Pennington has faced the way higher level in competition and that she's going to be able to collapse that pocket if she is uh, having po problems with the kicks or the distance uh, with Chase on having a, a reach advantage and a height advantage. So I do kind of expect there to be the points earlier on in the fight where it can look a little dicey on the feet for Raquel Pennington. But I do think that she's going to be able to collapse that pocket, eventually smother those kicks and the, the distance striking. You know, hopefully early, it's just probably going to be looking to put Macy Chason up against the fence like a lot of uh, Chason's opponents do. You know, tire out those arms, just kind of grind her out when she's fresh earlier in the round, in the first round. And I feel like uh, the longer this fight goes, the more the veteran uh, Raquel Pennington is going to end up kind of taking over the momentum. Very likely end up taking Chason down a few times and kind of having some ground and pound, some chop control, maybe some elbows inside control or half guard, stuff like that. But 
We'll see how it goes. I do feel like if Chase Sun's able to keep it on the feet, then this could be a very close competitive striking match between the two. I feel like Raquel Pennington has some crisp boxing, though. And, uh, you know, Macy Chase Sun probably has the advantage with those distant striking, those kicks and stuff like that. But we'll see how it goes. Either way, I'm going to go with Raquel Pennington, the slight favorite to get the job done here uh, in the third fight of the night. Moving on. We have Charles Jordan versus Andre Uhl. The slight favorite here, minus 190. Charles Jordan, this guy felt like had a lot of potential when he first entered the UFC. You know, he's got good movement and good striking. You know, he's I don't want to call him like flashy per se, but I just, you know, he faced some tough matchups in my opinion. And he's kind of, let's see, he's 2-2 two and two in the, and 1 in the UFC so far. Uh, Duho Choi's got a win over him and then a loss to Andre Feely, which is tough competition. Draw with Josh Calabao and then a win over Marcelo Rojo. Most recently coming off a loss three months ago to Julian Arosa. He got darts choked, I believe, in the first round. I could be wrong about that. But, you know, Julian Arosa is always a submission threat. So we'll see how, how he ends up, uh, if he's able to bounce back against the plus 160 underdog, Andre Uhl, who's off of a two-fight skid uh, loss to recently Chris Gutierrez nine months ago. And then four months ago, he's got coming off his most recent loss to Julio Arce. Julio Arce is legit. Uh, he TKO'd him, so I understand that kind of. But, you know, Andre U always comes in with a height and reach advantage in this division. He And he doesn't seem to be able to take too much of an advantage of it, in my opinion. Uh, Height-wise, he is actually at a disadvantage by one inch, but he does come in with a six-inch uh, reach advantage. So we'll see if he can take advantage of that. But I'm going to go with Charles uh, Jordan here, the slight favorite. I think the movement and the speed is going to be one of the more uh, significant factors in this fight. I think he's going to just be a little bit sharper, a little bit tighter in terms of like straight punches versus looping punches. Andre Uhl is always dangerous, especially if he gets into a rhythm and if he feels like he's flowing, he's feeling himself out there. He can, he can be dangerous. He's kind of like a, um, Sean Woodson in a sense, who is extremely long and lanky for his division as well. Sometimes those loopy punches can get around the elbows and get some body shots in, but we'll see how it goes. They don't necessarily fight the exact same way. Uh, but I am going to go with Charles Jordan here to get the dub. And then we have Sajar Eubanks versus Melissa Gatto, the 7-0-2 Melissa Gatto, taking on the 7-6 Sajar Eubanks. Not the most uh, decorated record in terms of wins and losses for Eubanks, but uh, she has faced a lot of tough competition in her UFC career, and I feel like she's only getting better. She's finally kind of getting her stride. She's faced, like, she took Caitlin Vieta, who recently took out Misha Tate. She took her to a uh, decision. And she's fought Piani Kanzad and took her to decision, even though both of those were losses. Most recently coming off a TKO ground, uh, ground and pound finish of uh, Elise Reed, and that was four months ago for Eubanks. And Melissa Gatto is undefeated, and she got one fight in the UFC. She beat Victoria Leonardo four months ago. And uh, I think this line is a little wide, minus 220 for Eubanks, uh, the plus 180 for uh, Melissa Gatto. But I do think Eubanks is the rightful favorite, but this is one of those fights I definitely have to wait and check out the weigh-ins. Uh, Eubanks has had issues in the past making weight. But again, in her last few fights, I feel like she's definitely shored things up, not only in the weight department, but just in her overall game. She understands she's gone, kind of gone back to her roots in terms of the grappling and the wrestling. She's good enough on the feet, but she doesn't like necessarily need to you know, win a striking battle every time. She like she needs to mix it up in order to have success, which I feel like she's been doing. So again, I'm definitely going to be scoping out the weigh-ins, but if Eubanks comes through it all right and she looks good on the scales, I, I think I'm going to end up sticking with it. So going with uh, the favorite, Sajar Eubanks, to get the win. And then in the next one, we have another heavyweight banger on the uh, prelim card, Justin Taffa versus Harry Hunsucker. 7-4 and four overall record for Hunsucker, 4-3 and three overall for Taffa. So these guys aren't without losses in their career. They're both kind of kill-or-be-kill heavyweights. They go out there and bang. 
I definitely don't feel like this was going to the judges, but you never know. When you say that shit, the MMA gods get mad at you, and you get the MMA or fighting combat sports version of blue balls, and they just go and give you a sloppy heavyweight fight. But uh, the big-ass favorite, Justin Toffa, minus 335 to plus 260 Huntsucker, because this is heavyweight and it only takes one, I think when the odds are kind of too wide for that scenario because Huntsucker could easily land on Toffa, although Toffa is definitely the better striker. And it always starts on the feet. So we'll see how it goes. I am going with Taffa to get the win and to get back on track here. So give me Justin Taffa in the sixth fight of the night. Moving on, we have Hani Barcelaris versus Victor Henry. Now, this one's actually pretty interesting as far as, like, how who I want to win versus who I think is going to win. I think this is a cut-and-dry win for Hani Barcelaris. He's been in the UFC since 2018 with wins over people like Kurt Hollabaugh, Chris Gutierrez, Saeed Nurmagomedov, Khalid Taha, you know, he's been in the UFC for a while and had some big wins. He's got a lot of momentum right now. He is the minus 335 favorite, but the plus 260 Victor Henry is making his UFC debut, and he's recently captured the Bantamweight Championship from, you know, that promotion Lights Out I went to a couple weeks ago to support my boy Brian. Well, Albert Morales, former UFC fighter, he actually is coming off a victory against him. So Victor Henry beats my boy Morales if he comes into the UFC and makes a splash in his UFC debut. Then I feel like that loss kind of ages a little bit better and lets people know I feel like Morales actually deserves a contract and should be back in the UFC. But, you know, that's another discussion for another time. But so my heart wants Victor Henry to come in and, you know, and shock the world and get the big upset. But my feeling is that Hani Barcelaris is going to come away from this one with probably a dominant looking performance. So give me the big favorite Barcelaris to get the win here. Then moving up the card, the next one, Gerald Mearshart versus Dustin Stoltfist. I'm going to go with Mearshart in this one. I think these are kind of two versions of the same fighter. And uh, that Mirstretch just got, he's faced higher level exp- uh, experienced fighters in the past. He's coming off a big win recently. He's actually looked the best I've seen him as of late. So I think he's going to keep that momentum going and that experience is going to be the difference there. So give me the minus 235 favorite, Gerald Mirshart, to round out the prelim card. And moving on, first fight of the main card, we have one of the fights I'm looking forward to most in Cub Swanson versus Darren the Damage Elkins. 27 and 9 Elkins versus the 27 and 12 cub swanson and the odds here actually i feel like pretty accurate we have a minus 190 favorite for cub swanson to the plus 160 underdog for darren elkins who's always a live dog and i think the difference in this fight is going to be cub swanson's experience and his mentality and his experience watching other fighters make that mistake of trying to put darren elkins away we've talked about it before you know the glover to of the world the clay guidas of the world you know you try to put these guys away then you end up gassing yourself out and then they end up putting you away so I feel like Cub Swanson is not an ego-driven fighter. He's he's been in the game for a very long time. He's kind of a you know the elder statesman at this point, and he's definitely got the more high-level footwork and boxing skills. Darren Elkins is a smaller cage, so he might be able to cut him off. He might be able to put him up against the fence. He might be able to grind him down to the floor and just make it a Darren Elkins dirty-ass fight and end up you know taking over the momentum later in the fight after. You know, exhausting Cub Swanson, that could very well be one of the ways this fight plays out. But I'm actually going to go with Cub Swanson. I think he's going to utilize his footwork and angles to keep taking angles on the uh, on Elkins and, you know, keeping the fight in the center of the octagon as much as he can, keeping his back off the fence and not trying to get the finish. I think he's just going to pick his shots and know that if he wins on volume and touches him the entire fight and doesn't get taken down and grinded out, that he can grind out himself a decision. So, I'm going to go with the minus 190 favorite, Cub Swanson, to get the win here. And then in the next one, we have Carlos Diego Fajeda versus Matus Gamrot. This fight is actually going to be very, very high-paced. I feel like very exciting to watch. 
Gamrot's got a, a very elite level wrestling pedigree and just overall grappling skills. But Carlos Diego Fajeda is a, a very slick submission artist himself. And these guys both are very good on the feet. But primarily they have a grappling heavy style, both of them. So sometimes we see this where that can cancel each other out and they end up having a you know nonstop drag out war on the feet. So you really never know which way it goes. It could go all three rounds and be just a high pace potential for a fight of the night, or one of these two could take out the other one early. But I think Matus Gamron is going to grind out a decision here. His wrestling is going to be the difference. He might put himself into some spots where it wouldn't surprise me if Fajeda is able to maybe sweep him or put him in some sort of precarious submission, whether it's a limb or actually maybe a triangle or submit him, like choke him out. But you know, I think that it could either be fight of the night or it could actually also be somewhat boring, uh, depending on the ref you get to. Uh, Gamrot could get one takedown around and then just keep himself from getting submitted and uh, end up winning that way. So you never really know how it goes. I mean, testament to last week, and you never ha know how any of this shit's going to go, no matter how long you watch. So, But I do feel like more often than not, Gamrot ends up coming away with the victory here. So going with him in the second fight of the main card, Moving up, we have the next one, which is going to be a lot of fun as well. Rafael Sunsell versus Ricky Simone. And for me on this one, it's actually really difficult for me to pick. My initial lean was uh, Ricky Simone. He's always someone that you can back uh, as far as like a betting standpoint because he's going to, you know, he's got a motor. He does not stop for the full 15 minutes. He continues to try to pursue takedowns and grappling. He hits like a truck for his size. And, you know, he's just always pressing, always coming forward. He's not. Uh, at a lack for action so you know you're always going to get someone that's like fighting for your dollar is the expression right but i feel like in this spot especially the odds makers are a lot of people are really overlooking hafiel sunsau here former title former title challenger 27 and 8 overall ricky simone is 18 and 3 overall so hafiel sunsau has more overall experience but the odds makers have as, uh, him as a plus 225 underdog to Ricky minus 280 favorite. And I think that's just kind of disrespect this. I feel like this should pretty much be even money. Uh, these guys are very well-rounded on both sides, and I just think that it's going to be a close competitive fight. This one could also have high potential for fight of the night. And I think it all kind of comes down to how elusive can a Sun Cell be, how much can he keep his back off the fence, and then also physicality. I need to see these guys at weigh-ins. Numbers don't always tell the, the whole story in terms of like their attributes, height, and reach, and stuff like that. So if Ricky Simone looks like a physical specimen, he's going to be able to kind of lock down a Sun Cell and kind of control him maybe up against the fence and, and you know tire him out and eventually take him down and kind of control him, maybe big brother him a little bit. You know, if I feel like he's going to have the physicality to do that, it's only going to raise the confidence in my pick. However, you know, don't be, I wouldn't be surprised if a Sun Cell ends up getting the win here too because, again, I think he is a live underdog. It shouldn't be this wide of the odds. And, uh, you know, but I am going to go with Simone to get it done. And then we have Amanda Lemos versus Angela Hill. Now, this is another matchup where I feel like the odds makers are kind of disrespecting Angela Hill a little bit here. And although I do think Lemos is definitely the deserved favorite, but not necessarily a 3-1 to one on both sides, I'm seeing at some books. The 10-1 overall Lemos is on a four-fight winning streak, most recently KOing Montserrat Ruiz four months ago back in August. And, you know, I get it. Angela Hill's kind of alternated wins and losses in her last few fights. She's only won two out of her last five. So momentum's at Lemos's back. But still, when you look at the level of competition that Angela Hill has faced, you know, I feel like, you know, going up against the likes of people like Claudia Gadelia and, like, Michelle Watterson, you know, former title challengers. Her most recent loss was also four months ago to Tisha Torres. So those are actually all her three losses in her last five fights. So that goes to show you the level of competition she's been facing. But I do think the biggest issue, like, stylistically for Hill in this fight is that her bread and butter, what she does the best is on the feet, 
That's where she does her best work. She has been working really hard to shore up her ground game and, and make sure that level of that is at the same level as her striking. But what she does the best, what she does really well, Lemos does really well. And, like, I think is on the level, if not hits harder than uh, Hill. And she does everything else really well, too. So, you know, she could take this fight in a lot of different areas. She has more paths to victory. I feel like she's a little bit more well-rounded. So she is the rightful favorite. Um, so I am going with Amanda Lemos to get the victory here. And now in the co-main event, we got Stephen Wonderboy Thompson versus Bilal Muhammad. The 16-5-1 Stephen Wonderboy Thompson is minus 220 favorite to the plus 180 underdog for Bilal Muhammad, who's 19-3 and three overall. Now, this fight stylistically is really intriguing to me because the with the smaller octagon at the UFC Apex, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson is not going to be able to utilize as much of his footwork or he's going to have to be on his bike and be very creative in terms of changing angles and being elusive, which we know he's very good at. And he normally does his best work when a fighter uh, pushes forward and tries to come at him and Bilal Muhammad is somewhat linear at times when he's trying to, uh, you know, close off the cage and corral his opponent. So um, it could be one of those where Stephen Wonderboy Thompson is able to kind of bait Bilal to, you know, maybe draw him a certain direction into one of his kicks or something that, you know, devastating that he doesn't see coming. But he is the more creative fighter. Bilal Muhammad is a little bit more straightforward uh, meat and potatoes. And the fact that it's a little bit smaller in octagon, he could potentially be able to close it off quicker and uh, get Stephen Wonderboy up against the fence, at least maybe early in the fight, which we've seen this tactic before, you know. You got to weigh on the arms. You got to tire your opponent out. You got to grind them out, stay persistent. And eventually, you know, when they're tired and you kind of level the playing field in terms of the disparity, in terms of height and reach and striking in this case, then maybe you can come on and, uh, and blow Muhammad's case. He's up against it because Stephen Wonderboy Thompson has notoriously good takedown defense, especially up against the fence. But if he can establish that physical control and that cage control and just kind of put him up against the fence early, stay safe in terms of uh, his entries and grind it out, make it an ugly, you know, in the in the pocket, in the phone booth, close and personal fight, then he could potentially, uh, you know, put Stephen Wonderboy off his game and come away with the victory here. I am going with Wonderboy, though. I think it's actually going to be a, a high pace fight because – Bilal likes to come forward, and Wonderboy's going to have to move in that smaller cage. So I think it's actually going to finish inside the distance due to that fact. And so I'm going with Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, and I think he gets it done second round TKO. And now for an absolute nuclear bomb of a heavyweight main event between Chris Dalkis and Derek Lewis. Chris Dalkis 12-3 overall to Derek Lewis 25-8 overall. But the odds makers are giving the up-and-comer with only this being his fifth fight in the UFC the favorite distinction at minus 145, Derek Lewis is a plus 125 underdog, which is crazy considering he's faced Daniel Cormier for the title once and just recently in his only loss his last five fights faced Surreal Gone for the interim heavyweight title. So he's had two title shots and he's an underdog to this guy who's only now this would be his fifth fight in the UFC. That's crazy. If you guys don't know, Chris Dalkis in his 12 wins in his professional career has only gone past the second round one time and that was in 2016. He normally gets it done early, and we all know Derek Lewis is one of the most explosive and powerful strikers in the entire on the entire planet. He's got uh, Knockout King tattooed on his chest. Uh, Chris Dawkins has Mike Weathers Keeper tattooed on his chest. He's also a police officer, and he's a gritty son of a bitch. So this is going to be one hell of a fight, and especially, again, I have to mention it, with that smaller cage and these two big boys, 
this shit is going to end inside the distance without a doubt. And Chris Dawkins, if you guys know anything about him, he moves extremely light on his feet for a heavyweight. He's going to have the speed advantage. But with Derek Lewis, I just can't bet against him. Ever since he knocked out Curtis Blaze, I just can't bet against the guy. He's been fed wrestler after wrestler after wrestler and with what appears to be you know a limited skill set and he just is able to somehow find the knockout and get these guys out of there so i think i personally have noticed ever since he's gotten his back taken care of and after he lost that title shot against cormier he realized holy shit i can actually do this and you know he keeps up the persona a lot of people don't take him serious because of it but in the background he works his ass off and he's been trying to actually become a more well-rounded mixed martial artist. And in his last few fights, I feel like he's kind of been forced, you know, through stylistic matchups to continue to prove that he's been trying to work on all these other aspects of his game. And I don't know how long it's been since he's going to just have someone standing across from him and ready to throw hands, you know what I'm saying? So I think uh, Chris Dawkins and him are going to have to step in the middle of the cage and figure out who's going to go to sleep. And uh, I'm going with the Black Beast on this one. Derek Lewis... And um, I don't even know if it can get past the first round. I really don't. I think if Dawkins tries to press the action early and tries to maybe catch uh, Derek Lewis cold and try to maybe overwhelm him and get him out of there, you know, that actually could possibly work. Or it could also at the same time end up being the strategy that ends up with him waking up, staring up at the light. So we'll see how it goes. But I'm very, very excited for this. I think it's going to go to the second round. I think it's going to take a little bit to open up, a little bit of a feeling out process in the first just because there's so much potential for you know a bomb to go off. But uh, I think it goes two, and I go Derek Lewis, second round KO. And that wraps up the picks for UFC Fight Night, Chris Dawkins versus Derek Lewis. Make sure to return next week where I'm going to be recapping all the action from the last UFC card of the year. I'll also be announcing the winner of the 2021 DLSS Predictions Challenge, Plus, I'm going to let you guys in on a new segment I'm going to do while the UFC's off for a couple weeks. That's 100% listener submission driven, so stay tuned for that. But until then, thank you guys so much for tuning in. But that's it. That does it for this week's installment of the D-Love Special Sauce Podcast. Hope you guys liked the show. If you did, go over to Apple and iTunes. Give us a five-star rating and a positive review. While you're there, turn the notification bell on. That way you're on top of all the most current content. If you're already supporting a small independent podcast, please do check out and support all the small businesses that support us just like you guys by listening every week. We got Monique Taylor with Strong Women Designs. We got Dreamloud Collections, my girl Nora, custom handmade jewelry. Check her out. OC Party Rentals, Paint Bay, the journey of a modern day painter, Upper Glass Tent, Eden Buttery Pancakes is getting people shredded, Vargas Auto Spa, California Shirt Smith. Check out Justin for some custom print works, Blake Builder and the Builder System, Mac Noodles and Chef, Ricardo with Neighborhood Auto Care, Socks Meals, Angie Snyder, of course, he loves to and tonic, but last and not least, MNT Fitness. Make sure to check him out on Instagram. Make sure to go out and check out the gym. Exit Avery Parkway off the five freeways. First class is always free. Tell him the DLSS podcast sent you. But that does it for this week, guys. Until next week, same time and same place. Enjoy the fights.